It's the serial killer many of you have been waiting for, the one who so cruelly taught the importance of a secure home. This week we discuss the Night Stalker himself, Richard Ramirez. Let's open the serial killer file. Richard was born in El Paso, Texas in 1960, the youngest of five siblings. His father was a Mexican national and a former policeman from Juarez. He worked hard on the Santa Fe Railroad, but would occasionally have violent outbursts, which led to extensive abuse. Aside from this, Richard seemed to be a bit accident-prone. He sustained two serious head injuries as a child, once when a dresser fell on him and lacerated his head, and another when a swing at the park struck him so hard it knocked him unconscious. Richard began to experience frequent epileptic seizures that would continue to plague him into his early teen years. Things took an especially dark turn when Richard began to spend time with his older cousin Miguel. Miguel was a veteran of the Green Berets and would often brag about his most gruesome experiences during the Vietnam War. A sick, twisted man, he would show Richard photos he had taken of people he had killed or women he had raped. Some of the photos featured Miguel holding the severed head of a woman he had sexually abused. The two took their relationship a step further when Miguel began teaching Richard military skills, including stealth and kill tactics. Richard began avoiding his father and spending his nights sleeping in cemeteries. Miguel's influence over Richard continued. One day, Miguel shot his wife Jesse in the face with a 38 caliber revolver after an argument. Richard was present and witnessed the entire thing. The murder shut him down to a sense. He began to withdraw from others. Miguel pled insanity and was released after spending four years in a mental hospital. Richard moved in later with his older sister and her husband, who was an obsessive peeping Tom, and would take Richard on night rides with him, where they would both peek in people's windows and search for women undressing. During this time, Richard began to delve into LSD and Satanism. As time went on, the line between Richard's corrupt introduction to sexuality and his experiences with violence began to blur. Richard ended up taking a job at a Holiday Inn. He used his passkey to access people's rooms and steal from them while they were asleep. He was eventually fired when a man returned to his room one night to find Richard attempting to rape his wife. He beat Richard terribly, but due to the fact that he was from out of state and not wishing to return for a trial, the couple refused to testify against him and the criminal charges were dropped. Richard dropped out of school and at the age of 22 moved to California. But Richard's future was destined to become much, much worse. On April 10th, 1984, the Night Stalker was officially born. 
It was then that Richard's first known killing came to light. A nine-year-old girl was found murdered in a hotel basement where Richard had been living in San Francisco. The girl had been beaten, raped, and stabbed until dead. Her body was strung up carelessly on a pipe. The next victim was found on June 28, 1984. She was 79 years old and was found brutally stabbed to death while she had been asleep. Her throat was then cut so severely that she had almost been decapitated. In March of 1985, Richard attacked a 22-year-old woman as she pulled into her garage by shooting at her face. Thankfully, the bullet ricocheted off her keys when she raised her hands to protect herself, and she survived. Her roommate heard the gunshot and hid, but Richard found her and shot her in the head killing her instantly. Richard wasn't done, however. Within an hour following the murder, Richard pulled a 30-year-old woman out of her car in Monterey Park and shot her twice before fleeing. She died upon arriving at the hospital. The incredibly bold and outrageous criminal acts sparked much media attention. But the Night Stalker was only getting started. Ten days later, Richard broke into a home at around 2 a.m. and shot a 64-year-old man while he slept. His wife was awakened by the noise and Richard beat her repeatedly before tying her up and demanding to know where her valuables were. While searching the room, the woman managed to escape her binds and grabbed her husband's shotgun. It wasn't loaded. This enraged Richard, who shot her three times and then retrieved a large carving knife from the kitchen. The woman's body was mercilessly mutilated. Her eyes had been gouged out and placed in a jewelry box. Richard took the box with him. The two victims were discovered by their son. Police examined the bullets and were able to confirm a match between them and ones found at previous crime scenes. They then knew a serial killer was on the loose. But aside from the bullets, some footprints, and a rough description from one single survivor, police didn't have too much to go on. But Richard seemed to. He continued to invade people's homes at night, murdering, raping, stealing. Most of the victims were elderly. He'd sneak his way in and explode into violence, shooting people in the head, bludgeoning them with hammers, shocking them with electrical cords in order to torture them. Oddly enough, Richard would at times leave his victims alive. One such instance was after he beat a 16-year-old girl with a tire iron while she slept. He couldn't find a knife, so he began strangling her with a telephone cord. The cord sparked and surprised Richard. Once his victim began to breathe again, he took it as a sign of divine intervention by Jesus Christ and fled. She required nearly 500 stitches to close up the wounds he gave her. If he would let anyone live, it'd almost always be after a severe beating and sometimes vicious raping. He would take from them everything of value. And if the victim claimed that they had nothing left for him to take, he'd make them swear on Satan. At a few crime scenes, Richard would use lipstick to scrawl pentagrams on the walls or on victims' bodies. The media was in a frenzy over the murders, and the mayor at the time made a crucial error. Richard often left footprints at scenes. The mayor, Diane Feinstein, leaked sensitive information to the public via a press conference, which infuriated detectives. They knew Richard would have been following media coverage. And they were right. Richard, that very night, dropped his shoes off the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge and hid out for a few days before returning back to Los Angeles, where he invaded another man's home. He shot him in the head three times, but miraculously, the man survived. The man's fiancée was present, and Richard introduced himself as the Night Stalker. She was bound and beaten and forced to swear her love for Satan before she was raped and sodomized. 
like so many victims before her. He left her alive and escaped in one of his many stolen cars. This time, however, a 13-year-old neighbor noticed the suspicious figure and wrote down most of the license plate number. The car was eventually found abandoned and police were able to lift one single fingerprint from the rearview mirror, aside from the fact that Richard was often meticulous about wiping any vehicle down of fingerprints first. The print led to a positive identification of the suspect who had been in trouble with drugs in the past. Richard's face was now plastered everywhere, but due to the fact Richard was out of the state to meet up with his brother, he had no idea. Upon his return, he casually walked up to a convenience store and noticed a group of elderly women referring to him as the killer. Richard looked down to find his own face on the newspaper rack by him and fled in panic. There was nowhere left for Richard to hide. Everyone knew exactly who he was. He attempted a number of carjackings after being chased down by residents. He was struck over the head with a metal bar eventually and pinned down until police arrived. And the Night Stalker had been caught. In perhaps one of the most famous moments of all serial killer history, Richard held up a hand with a pentagram drawn on it and exclaimed, Hail Satan, at his first court appearance. On September 20th, 1989, Richard Ramirez was convicted of 13 counts of murder, 5 attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries. He was sentenced to die in the gas chamber, to which Richard scoffed and replied, Big deal. Death always went with the territory. See you in Disneyland. Richard Ramirez was in his mid-twenties when he was caught and died at the age of 53 in 2013, not from the gas chamber, but from B-cell lymphoma. It's believed he wouldn't have been executed until he was well into his 70s due to the lengthy process of appeals. The thirst for killing may subside, but it always just lingers below the surface. Today we discuss the serial killer and rapist known as the Grim Sleeper. Let's open the serial killer file. It was the 1980s in Los Angeles when alleyways and dumpsters began to unravel the grisly resting places of female corpses. Due to the consecutive similarities of each body found, police linked each murder to the hands of one killer, one they would eventually name the Southside Slayer. With the increase of activity in the case, the Southside Slayer was brought to the attention of news outlets around California. Upon further investigation, detectives were able to identify a handful of additional killers, as opposed to one main suspect, making it difficult to link each murderer to one case. At this time, detectives were able to identify four men involved in each case. These were four men that did not know each other, however had a very similar style of killing at a very similar point in time. Lewis Crane, Daniel Lee Siebert, Ivan Hill, and Michael Hughes were all convicted of killing more than one victim, each by methods of strangulation and stabbing. However, the body of a particular victim named Deborah Jackson was eventually found to have been killed by another method one which didn't tie into any of the other killings. This led to investigators searching for an entirely different murderer. It would be two entire decades later when police were finally able to tie the murder of Deborah to a prime suspect. 
the one who would eventually be known as the Grim Sleeper. In 2007, a homeless man scavenging for food discovered the body of Janisha Peters, who was found shot to death and left to decay in a garbage bag. It didn't take investigators very long to link the DNA of their most recent victim to previous slayings that had taken place a mere 20 years prior. The missing link eventually led detectives to dub their unknown killer as the Grim Sleeper due to the large break in between the slayings. A team consisting of seven investigators were formed for the case specifically and together were titled the 800 Task Force. Just after four months into the investigation, the 800 task force made headlines when they created friction between the police department and the public. Keeping the killer a silent cause amongst the public for 23 years enraged residents across the city. Both the mayor of Los Angeles and the police chief had kept silent, never reaching out to families or addressing the fact that a serial killer was still roaming the streets. With the abundance of headlines making way, a woman named Anatra Washington came forward shortly after, stating that she had been close to death by the hands of the serial killer. She described her attacker as a thin and well-groomed African-American man in his early 30s, who had persistently offered her a lift to a party she was supposed to attend that fateful evening. Stating he had to make a quick stop at his uncle's residence, the two pulled over to the side of a quiet neighborhood where he got out of the car and made his way to the unknown house. It didn't take long before her attacker made his way back into the car and eventually started an argument with the victim. He then pulled out a 25 caliber handgun, shooting her in the chest. Once blacking out, she had awoken to her attacker sexually assaulting her in the car while documenting the attack with a Polaroid camera. It was moments after when she pleaded to be taken to the hospital for her serious injuries, to which he refused to do so in fear of getting caught for his actions. Fortunately, however, she did escape. In 2008, Los Angeles authorities released information about the Grim Sleeper to America's Most Wanted, with a $500,000 reward to anyone who knew the whereabouts of the unknown serial killer. The LAPD would finally have their well-awaited breakthrough in 2010 when they were able to apprehend 52-year-old Lonnie David Franklin Jr. as a prime suspect in their case. With sufficient DNA evidence in their database, police rightfully charged their main lead for 10 murders and one attempted murder from 1985 to 2007. Under further investigation, police were able to track Franklin's criminal record that mainly based around stolen property and battery charges in 1989. Unsuccessful in retrieving the identity of additional victims, the LAPD released 180 photos of women found in Lonnie's house. To this day, it's still unknown as to whether or not all of the women in the photos were actually victims of the convicted serial killer. As time went on, however, investigators were eventually able to retrieve over 1,000 images and several hundred hours of video footage in the house dating back 30 years. It was noted that Franklin had a keen interest in African-American females spanning from young teenagers to older women. It appeared that the images were taken by the hands of the killer, who often had the women nude, conscious, or unconscious at times. It was unknown if the women who appeared unconscious were either asleep or dead. The effort to help identify additional females in the case has yet to be proven fruitful. However, their images are still available for the public. If you have any information regarding the whereabouts of these people, please contact the appropriate law enforcement agency right away. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week. 
bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. The serial killer known as the Grim Sleeper died in prison over the weekend. Lonnie Franklin Jr. was convicted of murdering 10 women, but suspected of killing so many more. Franklin died on what was California's death row at San Quentin State Prison, cause unknown, though there were no signs of trauma. With a moratorium on executions in California, it was unclear if the death sentence would ever have been carried out. It's a relief to know that he's that he's gone and that the victim's families that are still alive were able to see an end to that. Prosecutor Beth Silverman tried the case against Franklin. She says she thinks it's unlikely he would ever reveal more information about how many other women he killed or what he did with their bodies. And I'm fairly certain that Lonnie Franklin was going to take to the grave uh, all of the information regarding the unprosecuted, unknown victims that we were never able to put together. The series of murders began in the 1980s. The last confirmed case was in 2007. Franklin wasn't detected by police until DNA technology allowed a database search for relatives of the killer. Franklin was arrested in 2010. Police found photos and videos of 180 women inside his home. Most of those women have been identified, but dozens of them remain mysteries to this day. So Franklin's case was the first solved in L.A. County using familial DNA test techniques. Although the coroner or the uh, State Department of Corrections says there was no obvious trauma, an autopsy is being done. Incidentally, prison officials tell us there are no known cases of coronavirus at the prison San Quentin where uh, Lonnie Franklin died. Reporting live, I'm investigative reporter Eric Leonard, NBC4 News. Back to you. A vicious killer who kidnapped, tortured, and killed for years. This week we discuss the Sunday morning slasher, Carl Eugene Watts. Let's open the serial killer file. Eugene Watts was born on November 7, 1953 in Colleen, Texas. Carl was just shy of turning two when his parents ended their short-lived marriage. His father, Richard Watts, was a private first class in the army while his mother, Dorothy May Young, taught art to students in kindergarten. Due to the family's unfortunate circumstances, both Carl and his young sister moved with their father to Inkster, Michigan. It was during this time when the mother began occupying herself with teaching and regrouping herself after the divorce. This left Carl in the hands of his grandmother, who fondly remembered him having a passion to hunt and skin rabbits while he was just a child. While in his grandmother's care, Carl adopted the nickname Coral due to the common southern pronunciation that was frequently used by his grandmother and cousins. It was a matter of years before his mother remarried a gentleman named Norman Caesar, a mechanic who himself had six of his own biological children. Together, the couple had two daughters of their own, leaving Carl often feeling isolated and alone in such a large family. As he transitioned into adolescence, Carl began to have fantasies of love and sex. However, these fantasies were anything 
but charming. At age 12, Carl began to fantasize about girls. Instead of fantasizing about relationships, he envisioned the gruesome acts of torturing and killing girls and women who were much older and younger than him. In school, Carl was described as a strange student who often enjoyed stalking girls. His academic life fell apart when he was 13 after he was diagnosed with meningitis, an infection that affects the membranes which aid in shielding the brain and spinal cord. Dealing with a harsh sickness, Carl had no choice but to be held back from the 8th grade for lack of attendance. It was speculated Carl had sustained brain damage due to the fact that he struggled with his grades and had the reading capabilities of a 3rd grade student when he was 16 years old. The struggle of keeping up with his peers resulted in severe bullying while in school. Because of this, Carl continued to live with an introverted personality. In order to save up extra spending money, Carl became a paperboy delivering local newspapers to loyal customers in various neighborhoods. On June 29, 1969, while delivering papers, Carl knocked on the door of 26-year-old Joan Gave. Upon opening the door, Joan was unexpectedly attacked as Carl struck her repeatedly until she began screaming in fear. The alarming noise of her cry for help caused Carl to walk off the property, continuing his deliveries as if the violent altercation had never occurred. In no time, police were able to apprehend him, and when questioned for his actions, Carl simply stated, I just felt like beating someone up. Carl was institutionalized at Lafayette Clinic, a medical hospital, which was able to determine that he had suffered from mental retardation with an IQ of 68. Psychiatrists later reported that Carl was an impulsive individual who had a passive-aggressive orientation to life and struggled for control of his strong homicidal impulses. He was thought to exhibit a delusional thought process and was later released on November 7th of that same year. While in high school, Carl felt the only way he could release his violence was through physical sports which exerted his body, such as track and football. Though he struggled to excel in his studies, Carl graduated in 1973 and went on to receive a football scholarship to play for the team at Lane College in Tennessee. Reaching a great achievement in his life, Carl was hoping for a much better future, however this was anything but the case. A fresh start, Carl awaited his year playing college football, however his time would be cut short when he suffered a severe leg injury that gave him no other option but to drop out and return back home to his mother in Detroit. Within a year's time, Carl later went on to enroll himself in Western Michigan University. It was here where things began to take a dark and violent turn. Reports of female students being stalked and assaulted on and off campus began to arise. Carl was soon caught stealing plywood from the university, but had not been charged for it. On October 30, 1974, 20-year-old Gloria Steele received a knock on her door from an unknown man who appeared to have been seeking out a man named Charles. Generously allowing him in, Gloria was brutally tortured and murdered, being stabbed a total of 33 times. Because of his previous record of violence and with the help of women who came forward in identifying Carl, he was arrested for his actions and had confessed to attacking a minimum of a dozen women, but never cared to acknowledge the murder of young Gloria Steele. Knowing he was a danger to society, Carl was once again ordered to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at Kalamazoo State Hospital before his court hearing. Psychiatrists were able to learn that the man they had taken in had lacked any remorse for his attacks and was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. During his stay in the hospital, Carl fell into a deep depression and attempted to commit suicide by hanging himself with a cord, but he failed. By 1975, doctors had determined that Carl posed a danger to himself and to society. He was eventually sentenced to one year in prison. Unfortunately, he never stood trial for Gloria's murder because prosecutors lacked strong enough evidence to convict him. 
He was released in the summer of 1976, eager to resume his deadly campaign against women. Shortly after his release, Carl took the time to date and had his own daughter with an old friend named Dolores Howard. Living with a strained relationship, the couple broke up, and in a matter of months, Carl married Valeria Goodwill. During their marriage, Valeria described Carl as a man who experienced constant violent nightmares and lived a messy and unusual lifestyle. He would cut up houseplants with a knife and would leave clothing everywhere, including the garage floor. Though it seemed that Carl would take time and settle down and stray away from his violent past, the worst was yet to come. Over the next year, many reports of women being attacked and murdered had risen in the news. One that was broadcasted was of 44-year-old Jean Klein, a Detroit news reporter who had been violently stabbed 11 times with a screwdriver on Halloween night in 1979. Six months later, 17-year-old Shirley Small was stabbed twice in the heart while walking home. In July of 1980, Glenda Richmond, the manager of a local diner, was stabbed 26 times outside her home. Later in that month, Lily Dunn was seen kicking and screaming in her driveway. Witnesses watched as a car sped off with Lily screaming in the front seat. On September 14, 1980, 20-year-old Rebecca Huff was found dead. She had been stabbed over 50 times. In November of 1980, 63-year-old Lena Bennett was found hanging in her garage. She had been sexually assaulted and choked to death. Great concern consumed locals in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as the bodies of many women had been appearing. In pursuit of catching the killer, newspapers began to nickname Carl as the Sunday Morning Slasher. Officers were able to catch a break when they noticed a suspicious driver following a woman around Ann Arbor's main street at 5 in the morning. Once the woman realized she was being followed, she tried to hide in a doorway in fear as Carl searched for her. Police described Carl as a man who almost went nuts after losing his victim. Carl was arrested for using an expired vehicle license. It was at this time when police searched his car and discovered a wood filing tool, screwdrivers, and a dictionary that had the words, Rebecca is a lover, etched onto the book, which had previously belonged to murder victim Rebecca Huff, tying Carl to the crime. After hours of questioning, Carl refused to reveal any information he knew on the murder, giving officers no choice but to release him for a lack of evidence. Felony investigator Paul Bunton was adamant on tracking Carl. Round-the-clock police surveillance was placed on Carl, and because he had realized that he was risking his chance at killing, he moved to Columbus, Texas in the spring of 1981. With Michigan police on their toes at catching their killer, they took every chance they could to prevent future murders, and to do so, Carl's criminal records were immediately sent to Houston police once they were able to trace his whereabouts. Believing that Carl was the main suspect in several violent murder cases, police tried everything they could but ultimately lacked any significant evidence to tie Carl to multiple women. It became incredibly difficult to tie Carl to the murders as he had multiple ways of killing such as strangulation, bludgeoning, stabbing, slashing, and drowning. Carl made it more difficult to track himself due to the fact that he rarely performed any sexual acts on any of the women. Time was running out for Carl as police worked hard to do anything they could to bring him to justice. On May 23, 1982, Carl was arrested after attempting to break in and drown two women living together in Houston, Texas. In August of 1982, Harris County Assistant District Attorney Ira Jones bargained to deal with Carl, stating that he could get immunity for murder and would be charged with burglary with the intent to murder if he'd simply give up any information on his victims. 
Carl agreed and later confessed to attacking 19 women, murdering 13 of them, also taking the time to show officers the burial sites of three victims. Carl confessed to the murder of Jean Klein, the drowning of Linda Tilly in 1981, the stabbing of Elizabeth Montgomery, the strangulation of Elena Samander, and eventually claiming to have killed a total of 40 females, implying that more than 80 could have possibly been tied to him. Carl had often kept keepsakes of his victims and would eventually burn the items in hopes of ultimately killing the spirit. When questioned, Carl's main motive was that each of the random female targets appeared to have had evil eyes, according to him. In court, Carl pled guilty to one count of burglary with intent to kill, just as he bargained for. He eventually received 60 years in a penitentiary, and just before leaving, he told investigators, you know, if they ever let me out, I'll kill again. Once in jail, Carl attempted but failed to escape from jail and eventually turned to legal methods and began appealing his sentence. In 1989, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reviewed Carl's case and stated that the judge had previously failed to inform Carl that the bathtub water he attempted to drown Lori Lister in was construed as a lethal weapon. Because of this mistake, Carl was not required to serve his entire sentence, and despite all of his disturbing killings, he was eligible for release in May of 2006, making him one of the first serial killers to be legally released in U.S. history. Petrified and angry family members of victims protested Carl's release. In 2004, after 22 years, Joseph Foy came forward in describing the horrific acts of witnessing one of Carl's victims, Helen Dutcher, struggling to survive as she had been violently stabbed 12 times in an alleyway back in December of 1979. With further investigation into the cold case, Carl was eventually charged for the murder of Helen Dutcher and was sentenced to life in prison. A few months into the case, Carl was struck with a guilty verdict for the death of Gloria Steele and was sentenced to life imprisonment without a chance of parole on September 13, 2007. At the last moment, fate seemed to have swept in to keep Carl locked away in prison. However, his sentence was unexpectedly short. Carl was incarcerated at a maximum security prison in Ionia, Michigan. As many in the public assumed that Carl would serve his life sentences for a number of years to come, Carl's life was cut short when he died of prostate cancer on December 21st of that same year in a Jackson, Michigan hospital. Carl Watts was 53 years old. That's all in this file. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.